weary and need rest, to all who mourn and long for comfort, to all who fail and desire strength, to all who sin and need a savior. Emmanuel Church opens wide her doors with a welcome from Jesus, friend of sinners. Now here's this week's message. Jonah chapters 2 and 3. Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. I called to the Lord in my distress, and he answered me. I cried out for help from deep, from deep inside Sheol. You heard my voice. When you threw me into the depths, into the heart of the seas, the current overcame me. All your breakers and your billows swept over me. And I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look once more toward your holy temple. The water engulfed me up to the neck. The watery depths overcame me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. I sank to the foundations of the mountains. The earth's gates shut behind me forever. Then you raised my life from the pit, Lord my God. As my life was fading away, I remembered the Lord, and he and my prayer came to you, to your holy temple. Those who cherish worthless idols abandon their faithful love. But as for me, I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. I will fulfill what I have vowed. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Then the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Get up, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach the message that I tell you. Jonah got up and went to Nineveh according to the Lord's command. Now Nineveh was was an extremely great city, a three-day walk. Jonah set out on the first day of his walk in the city and proclaimed, In forty days, Nineveh will be demolished. Then the people of Nineveh believed God. They They proclaimed a fast and dressed in sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least. When word reached the king of Nineveh, he got up from his throne, took off his royal robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. Then he issued a decree in Nineveh. By order of the king and his nobles, no person or animal, herd or flock, is to taste anything at all. They must not eat or drink water. Furthermore, both people and animals must be covered with sackcloth, and everyone must call out earnestly to God. Each must turn from his evil ways and from his wrongdoing. Who knows? God may turn and relent. He may turn from his burning anger so that we will not perish. God saw their actions, that they had turned from their evil ways, so God relented from the disaster he had threatened them with, and he did not do it. This is the word of the Lord. All of you faithful attenders at Sunday school growing up, we'll do some biblical Story word association. Daniel and the lion's den. <laughs> Daniel and the lion's den. Balaam and the donkey. Good work. And Jonah and the big fish. We are in a three sermon series in the Old Testament prophet of Jonah and the minor prophets. What we're going to notice today is we're actually in the part with the fish. What we're going to notice in our passage is that rather than this big fish that we associate with the book of Jonah being a major part of the story, we're actually going to see that the, the big fish is only a minor player in a much larger story of God's mercy. In the, the account of Jonah's life and ministry here, a portion of it, we'll see that this fish, though it looms large in Sunday school stories and captured our imaginations as children, 
this fish only gets a bit part here in the book of Jonah. And there's actually other animals we're going to see next week as well that God appoints as part of his plan to show mercy, both to a disobedient and rebellious prophet, as well as mercy to a, a wicked city. And if we were to focus only on the fish, we will miss the forest for the trees, this wonderful account of our merciful God. So if you have your Bibles turned there to the book of Jonah, we're going to be looking at two chapters, the middle two chapters of the book of Jonah. If you have your journal, which we um, made available last week, we have some extras back there for any who didn't get one. We're going to be looking at two minor prophets over the coming weeks, Jonah and then Habakkuk, uh, here in Um, June and July, and our hope is at some point to revisit and do Micah and Nahum as well. So if you want one of these, they're at the back, there's at least a few left. You can get up right now and go get one and put your notes in it if you would like. We're happy to make those available to you. Well, the book of Jonah is a part of the Minor Prophets, and yet different than the other Minor Prophets, The the book of Jonah is actually a narrative, a historical narrative. Most of the rest of the minor prophets are actually summaries of the teaching and preaching of these prophets, summaries of the messages that God led them to bring, both to the nation of Israel, the the southern nation of uh, Judah, as well as messages to the nation surrounding Israel. But here in the middle of the minor prophets in the book of Jonah, we actually have a narrative about a prophet. And as we're going to see this week, the summary of his teaching or preaching is only one sentence. That's the only thing we get of Jonah's prophecy. One sentence in chapter 3. But this account is a a wonderful account of a rebellious prophet and yet God's abundant mercy. As we saw last week, God shows up in Jonah chapter 1. He tells Jonah a command, get up and go to Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrian Empire, and preach against the city, for her evil has come up before me. And Jonah, God's prophet, disobeys. He refuses to do it. In fact, he goes in the opposite direction. He gets on a boat, goes uh, on that boat to see if he can get as far away as possible from both Assyria and from God, because he was refusing to preach a message of judgment to his enemies. He was refusing to show mercy through preaching a message of judgment to his enemies because he knew that even with the message of judgment, there was an opportunity for Jonah's enemies, the people of Assyria, to repent of their sin, and he didn't want them to have the option of being able to turn from their sin, and so he ran away. As we saw last week, God was merciful even to Jonah, the unmerciful prophet, by lovingly sending a storm uh, to run him down. And in the midst of it, caused a revival among pagan sailors. Well, here we find ourselves in chapters 2 and 3. If you're taking notes, our main point from these chapters is this. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. That's actually chapter 2 and verse 10. What we're going to see in these two chapters is that God shows mercy to his own rebellious prophet and to a rebellious city. And it's my prayer that we'd be encouraged to reflect on God's mercy, both to self-righteous rebels like us, those who are God's people, 
and develop a heart of mercy for others too. And we'll have two sermon points. Chapter two is Jonah's prayer. Chapter three is Jonah's preaching. Jonah's prayer and Jonah's preaching. Or if you don't like peas, we can say Jonah's song and Jonah's sermon. You can do S's. We did R's last week. You can choose P's or S's. Jonah's prayer, Jonah's preaching, or Jonah's song and Jonah's sermon. We'll begin with point number one, Jonah's prayer from Jonah 1. We'll pick up in verse 17, uh, just quickly for context, but then we're going to jump into chapter 2. Look at verse 17 of chapter 1. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. As we saw last week... God pursued Jonah with a storm, and the boat that he got on was about to be destroyed. And in the midst of a crazy storm, Jonah is able to report to these sailors who he is, the God he serves, why the storm is here. And these sailors, surprisingly, are kind to him. And as we'll see throughout the book of Jonah, lots of irony going on. It, it, it is always this prophet a member of the people of God, the people of Israel, who is rebellious. And it's always these pagan nations and these pagan foreigners who keep acting in admirable ways. They respond to any revelation that they receive. They respond well to it. It's a surprise that God is being kind even to pagan nations in the midst of dealing with his rebellious prophet. But we saw that those sailors uh, prayed to God, said, do not count Jonah's blood against us threw him overboard. The storm ceased. And then it says that they began to pray and to sacrifice to Yahweh, to Israel's God. In the midst of Jonah's rebellion, some more pagan sinners come to know something of Israel's God. Now, do we know whether they were truly converted? No, but they seem to be responding well to this revelation. Uh, which is part of this theme throughout the book of Jonah, which is that God is going to show mercy to whom he will show mercy. And that he's not only going to save his own people, but he has a heart to save sinners from around the world as well. Well, Jonah is rescued through the fish. Now, being in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights is not his punishment for his rebellion. The fish is his lifeboat. It is the way by which he is rescued from certain death through this storm and through these waves. And sometime after being thrown overboard, Jonah realizes, different from chapter 1. Remember Jonah, it looks like in chapter 1, was willing to die rather than to go and take this message to Assyria. At some point after being thrown overboard, Jonah realizes he doesn't want to die. And he turns to God for help. He prays. God answers his prayer, and the answer to that prayer is this fish that swallows him. So chapter 2, then, is the song, or song, that Jonah composed after being rescued. It is his song giving an account of what happened to him. And it looks like it's a song of what happened over a period of seconds or minutes in terms of Jonah realizing he was going to die, realizing his desperate need, realizing he didn't want to die, crying out to God in prayer, and then God rescuing him. And he composes this song. It says, verse 1, from the belly of the fish. Now, here we have a miracle. The Bible is full of miracles. 
fact that there is a miracle here should not surprise us as Christians, but if you're here and you're not a Christian, reading about a miracle like a fish swallowing a human being and that human being being able to survive may seem surprising, but let me encourage you, I'm not going to prove to you that miracles can happen, let me encourage you to consider the possibility that miracles might happen. According to the Bible, God created all things, the heavens and the earth. And those of us who are Christians need to swallow not only the miracle of a fish swallowing Jonah and Jonah surviving, we need to swallow much bigger miracles, including the reality of our Savior Jesus being God become man in the incarnation, an even bigger miracle. Or the fact that he went through death and came out the other side and was resurrected from the grave. Christians are those that believe in miracles. We don't question the things that we read in the Bible when it comes to miracles, though we may scratch our heads at times and try to understand how they happened. Let me encourage you, if you're not a Christian, to talk to someone around you about the miracles in the Bible. It may be that you are being biased and refusing to consider the possibility of miracles. And if you are, it may be that there are even bigger miracles that you're willing to swallow, like the miracle of all things coming out of nothing, or life springing by itself from nothing. That's all I'm going to say about the miracle of the fish today. Sorry if that's what you were excited about. Happy to talk to you about this afterwards. What is here is only a verse or two about the fish, and then a verse at the end in verse 10 about the fish. What we have here in chapter 2 is... Jonah's prayer. And we want to notice what is in this prayer. But in light of the reality that we see in terms of the irony of the writer of the book of Jonah, we also want to notice what isn't here in this prayer. First of all, let's look at what is here in this prayer. Well, we have Jonah celebrating his salvation. Oh, it's a beautiful song. It's a beautiful chapter, a chapter of the salvation of Jonah. It's so beautiful, you might think that you'd stumbled into the book of Psalms reading it, right? It sounds just like passages from the book of Psalms. And you see here, Jonah celebrating his salvation. Look at verse 2. He says, I called to the Lord in my distress, and he answered me. I cried out for help from deep inside Sheol. You heard my voice. Now, Jonah's using flowery language to say that he understood that he was on the brink of the grave there in the water in the storm in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. He understood that he was about to die when God rescued him. Look then at verse 3. When you threw me into the depths, into the heart of the seas, the current overcame me. All your breakers and your billows swept over me. He sees, even in the activity of the sailors throwing him overboard, that God was sovereignly behind all of this. And that he was being cast into the sea by God's sovereign hand. And then, verse 4, he said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look once more toward your holy temple. He considers what damnation being rejected by God utterly might look like as he prepared to die. But in this moment of need, he, it says, looked once more toward his holy temple. Verse 4, he cries out to God for mercy. And surprisingly, God listens. Look at verse 5. The water engulfed me up to the neck. The watery depths overcame me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. I sank to the foundations of the mountains. The earth's gates shut behind me forever. 
He's using flowery language to talk about how far down into the water he went and how dire his need was. And on the brink of death, verse 7, sorry, verse 6, Then you raised my life from the pit, Lord my God. Verse 7, As my life was fading away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you, to your holy temple. Jonah celebrates God's wonderful salvation from his near-death experience of a watery grave. He then says, in contrast to him who cried out to the Lord and put his trust in the Lord to rescue him, verse 8, how foolish it is to serve idols. Those who cherish worthless idols abandon their faithful love. But as for me, verse 9, he makes a promise of sacrificing to the Lord with this song. So he sees this as his sacrifice with the voice of thanksgiving. And then he makes vows to the Lord. He says, I will fulfill what I have vowed. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Now that last line there is a profound verse. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It may be a theme verse for the whole Bible. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Jonah is giving glory to God for the salvation that he's experienced there in the deeps. Now that's what we have in terms of the content of this song. We have theological orthodoxy. We have a focus on God's salvation of him from certain death in a watery grave. And it shows that at some point he had a change of heart about dying. And he demonstrates that he cried out to God for deliverance. And God answered. Now that's what this chapter does say. But notice what isn't here. Notice what's missing from this prayer. Do you notice anything of remorse? Do you notice any hint of repentance, of his sin, his rebellion? Do you notice any place where he admits that he was wrong? Other than the possibility of considering his own damnation, where he says there um, that he considers having possibly been banished from God's sight, verse 4, I don't see any hint of remorse, of repentance, or of admitting his own sin or wrongdoing. Now, in light of the irony going on here in the, the book of Jonah, a book full of irony, as we saw last week, that should make this psalm ring a bit hollow. I'm not saying that he wasn't remorseful. I think he was to some extent. I'm not saying that there wasn't some kind of repentance here. I think he may have been repentant to some extent. He makes vows to the Lord. He vows to do better. He at least agrees to go to Assyria because we see in the next chapter he gets up and does it. He fulfills the vow that he made to God. It looks like the vow was to be faithful and obedient to the thing he refused to do in chapter 1, which required him to be saved by the fish from the ocean. But the fact that repentance and remorse is not ex uh, expressed here makes this psalm ring hollow. He doesn't talk about the fact that the deliverance was the result of his arrogant rebellion. He doesn't talk about his disobedience and refusal to go and take this message. He talks about his suffering and his need for salvation and his delighting in God's salvation from his suffering. But he doesn't talk about that the suffering is the result of his own disobedience. 
I think what we have here in Jonah is conflict. He's a, a conflicted individual. And I think as we're going to see next week in chapter 4, as that conflict comes out again, he has not ultimately repented from his sin or from his hatred of the Assyrians or from his concern that God be just to those people as much as he wants mercy for himself. You see, there is still a hypocrisy in Jonah. I think what we have here is something of what Paul describes in 2 Corinthians 7, people who have a worldly sorrow as opposed to a godly sorrow. Paul there contrasts a kind of worldly sorrow where people are sorry for the consequences of their sin. They're sorry that they're in the situation that they're in because of their sin, but they aren't genuinely repentant. They don't have a godly sorrow that leads to repentance. They're not concerned about their sin before a holy God. They're concerned simply with the consequences of their sin in terms of how it affects them or affects their standing with other people. Jonah has... Something similar to what we see in politicians who are caught in some scandal and have to get up and with tears talk about how sorry they are, right? How they, they will never do this again, right? And you know that if they hadn't been caught, they would still be doing the same thing that they were doing the day before today. It's just that they've been caught and they're concerned now with cleaning up their marketing cleaning up their presentation before the world. Well, Jonah waxes eloquent about his own salvation. This long and flowery song in chapter 2 is in the book in stark contrast with a shockingly short sermon on which the salvation of at least 120,000 people hangs. You see the contrast here. Jonah is flowery about his own salvation from the waves, and then when it comes to preaching mercy to 120,000 people in Nineveh, you get one line. Yet, 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. We are to sense the stark contrast of this flowery song with his shockingly short sermon. Reminds me a bit of the prayer of the self-righteous Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke 18. You remember this? Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and looked down on everyone else. Luke 18. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee was standing and praying like this about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Greedy, unrighteous, adulterers, even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything I got. But the tax collector standing far off would not even raise his eyes to heaven, but kept striking his chest and saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this one, that is the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Jonah here, I believe, is still like this Pharisee, proud of the fact that he's been saved by God and that God has shown a great display of salvation, saving him through a miracle from a watery grave. And this should, uh, a note for us exegetically, this should help us to consider how it is that we read our Bibles, especially narrative like this. Now I have to be really careful here. 
But we need to, when we read the Bible, know that on the one hand, everything in the Bible is true. It is without error. It is faithful and it is inspired by God. But that doesn't mean that we can read every line in the Bible and just read it on its face without considering where it fits in the Bible, in its context. We must read passages of the Bible in their context so that we can understand what the passage is saying. A helpful illustration of this is the, the whole book of Job. I love the book of Job. But know this, that much of those middle chapters of Job are full of lots of rubbish, lots of partially true things. And it becomes clear by the end of the book that these counselors, these friends who come, they're saying some true things, but it's mixed with a lot of foolish things too. And we can't just read those chapters and assume that every line in there being said by wicked people or foolish people that we can assume that this is a word from God. We need to be able to read our Bibles in their context. And that includes here, Jonah chapter 2. We need to be able to read even this beautiful psalm in its context and not miss what's going on in terms of the larger narrative of Jonah's self-righteousness in contrast with these wicked pagans who end up responding better to God than Jonah does. So in contrast here, we have Jonah singing Happy Salvation Day to me in chapter 2. Happy Salvation Day to me. And then in chapter 3, turning to say, you're all going to die. We should see this contrast. Now notice God's abundant patience with Jonah. He doesn't give up on him. He lovingly pursues his self-righteous, disobedient, and rebellious prophet. And notice that God is willing to have Jonah, in spite of his self-righteousness and his halfway apology, without genuine repentance. He lovingly pursues Jonah. To the end of the book, he's lovingly pursuing Jonah, even as he's lovingly pursuing 120,000 people in Nineveh. You notice that God is willing to take us, even when we only turn to him as a last resort. You know that God is so loving that he's willing to put us in difficult circumstances so that we'll realize we need him and cry out to him when we have exhausted all of our other options for salvation. He is loving and patient enough even to bring difficult trials, to bring us to the end of ourselves so that we cry out to him. So often when we go through life, we want to trust God only until we think we don't need him anymore. Right? We go to him in prayer and say, God, just get me through this tight spot. I'm not going to cry out to you again. I think I got this after that. But if you can just get, this, get me through this one thing, then I'll be fine. Isn't that how we go through life? We turn to God as a last resort. And we've expended all of our options and resources. And then we think, I've got it from here. And we forget God again. We thank him for his assistance. And we move on. We think we don't need him anymore. But the truth is we always need God. As we sang in our hymn, we need him every hour, every minute, every second. Reality isn't that we don't need God or only at times we need God. The reality is we've always needed God. We always do need God. We just don't always recognize that need. And yet God is so kind to bring trials or even here to bring us the consequences of our own sin and foolishness so that we will, in the midst of such difficulty, turn to him, cry to him for help. 
God was kind here to remind Jonah of his utter helplessness and dependence on God, leading Jonah to cry for help. And he was kind to answer that prayer, though that prayer was late, though that prayer was self-focused, and though that prayer was mixed in terms of its motivation. There's a passage where C.S. Lewis says, if God were proud, he would hardly have us on such terms. But he is not proud. He stoops to conquer. He will have us even though we have shown that we prefer everything else to him and come to him because there is nothing better now to be had. Isn't God so kind to lovingly pursue us and bring us to the end of ourselves so that we will turn to him? Now notice chapter 2 and verse 10. Salvation is of the Lord. This is true. It may be the theme verse of the whole book. And even though it comes from Jonah who is mixed in terms of his motivation in writing this psalm, it's true nonetheless. Salvation is of the Lord. God is showing through the book of Jonah that he is the one who saves sinners. He is the one who has mercy on his own self-righteous people and even on the wicked nations around Israel. The Lord saves, and there is no salvation apart from him. He is sovereign in and over salvation, and he saves for his glory. If you're here and you're not a Christian, hear this from me today. Salvation is of the Lord. There is a salvation that he offers to any that would turn from him. Jonah here is a type of Christ. In the midst of his foolishness and his need for rescue, he is able to prefigure Jesus, God himself in human flesh, in his three days and three nights in the belly of the fish. How wonderful is that? We have in Jonah a picture of Jesus' death and three days in the grave and then his victorious resurrection. The salvation that God brings is through his son, Jesus Christ, who came and lived perfect life that we haven't lived, who achieved perfect righteousness as a human being. God become flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. He, he achieved the salvation that we need. He died on the cross, a death as a sacrifice for sinners like you and me. So that his righteousness could be applied to us and our sin be put on him on the cross. And the wrath that we deserve placed on Jesus on the cross. He was raised from the grave to show his victory over sin and death. So that he, Jesus, might offer salvation to any that would turn from their sins. Trust in him. And know that they can be reconciled to their creator God in a perfect and loving relationship throughout all eternity. Salvation is of the Lord. Salvation can be yours today. If you're here and you're not a Christian, if you turn to Christ for your salvation. I'm sure I or anyone around you would love to talk with you more about that. So that today might be the day of your salvation. Well, that's point number one. Jonah's prayer or Jonah's psalm. Point number two is Jonah's preaching. Or Jonah's sermon. You see here then, Jonah's preaching or his sermon there in Nineveh. We have here a second call of Jonah. This is in contrast, in comparison with the first call of Jonah. Where God tells him what to do. Go, arise. Go to Nineveh. Preach against the city. All of chapter 1 and 2 then is Jonah running away from this command we now have in chapter 3 Jonah's actual obedience to this command we have the second call of Jonah there in Jonah 3 verse 1 
Word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Get up, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach the message that I tell you. Jonah got up and went to Nineveh according to the Lord's command. Now, it says in verse 3 that Nineveh was an extremely great city. That means large. It says that it's a three-day walk. And what that means is it was so large and sprawling that it took three days to walk through the city. So it took... It would take three days to walk through it. Jonah got up and went to Nineveh, and it says, verse 4, that he set out on the first day of his walk in the city and proclaimed, verse 4, in 40 days Nineveh will be demolished. So Jonah begins to walk through the city on the first day, proclaiming this message that God gave him in one line. In 40 days Nineveh will be demolished. Demolished In 40 days, yet 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown, some translations put it. Now, this message is important in terms of the content of it, what it says. It's a declaration of justice, a declaration of God's wrath coming upon sinners who deserve it, which we heard back in chapter 1. But notice what is missing from this uh, sermon. It's only one line. What's missing from it? Yeah. No call to repentance. No offer of mercy. No explanation of what to do to stave off God's wrath. Just the simple command. Yet 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. In 40 days, Nineveh will be demolished. Jonah preaches truth from God to the wicked about their destruction that God has promised to bring. And what he says is technically true. And what he says comes from God. He doesn't mess with the message. He just leaves some things out. But notice the response of these Ninevites to this message, verse 5. Then the people of Nineveh believed God. The people of Nineveh believed God. God. God's word is proclaimed to the wicked that his wrath is coming upon them for their sins and for their wickedness. And how did they respond to this? Did they laugh? Did they ridicule? Did they try to kill him? How did they respond to God's inspired word being spoken, being proclaimed, being preached? They believed God, it says. Verse 5. And what else did they do? They proclaimed a fast. They dressed in sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least. So they proclaim a fast. Fasting was a way of withholding food, or here, food and drink, as a way of demonstrating their own spiritual concern, their concern for their souls, even more so than for their physical well-being, as a way of drawing near to divinity. They proclaim a fast, and they dressed in sackcloth, it says, which is a sign of mourning. People would wear sackcloth when they were mourning at a funeral, or if some terrible thing had happened, they would dress in sackcloth as a way of demonstrating how miserable they were. And this is what the Ninevites do, and it says that they all did it from the greatest of them to the least. Imagine this. A city of at least 120,000 people all responding by believing the message that Jonah proclaims, half-hearted though it is, and as minimal as it is, they respond rightly. They believe God, and then they fast, and then they dress in sackcloth. 
Look at verse 6. Word reached the king of Nineveh. He got up from his throne. He took off his royal robe. He covered himself with sackcloth, and he sat in ashes. Proverbs says that the heart of kings are in the Lord's hands. He does with them what, what he wills. Here, the heart of the king of Nineveh, a great and powerful king, a wicked king, responds rightly to this message from Jonah, a message it looks like he only heard secondhand. And then what does the king do, verse 7? Is he prideful? Is he arrogant? Does he execute Jonah for saying such terrible things? No, he does the same thing as the rest of the people. And then he goes further. He issues a decree in Nineveh. By order of the king and his nobles, no person or animal, herd or flock, is to taste anything at all. They must not eat or drink water. Furthermore, both people and animals must be covered with sackcloth. Imagine them covering their pets and their... Um, farm animals with sackcloth too. And everyone must call out earnestly to God. Each must turn from his evil ways, from his wrongdoing. I grew up working on a farm because my dad had grown up working on a farm and he thought that us kids growing up in the 80s and 90s were lazy and he didn't want us to be lazy. So he had us work for farmers. And one of the jobs that I did was feeding the cows. I would feed the calves when I uh, would come after school to work, feed them their bottles. I would feed the other cows at different times. But these cows were on a, a routine. And if you missed that routine, if you were a little late from when they expected you to come, what do cows do when they don't eat or drink or they're hungry? They bellow. There were times I would get a little late to feeding the calves, and those calves would just be bawling, bawling, and if you miss a feeding with the cows, you'll have a whole barn just bellowing, proclaiming, bellowing because they're hungry and they're thirsty. What we have here, these Ninevites are literally making sure that not only themselves are crying out to God, but that all of their animals are doing the same thing, that the animals are a picture of where their hearts are at. They are crying out to mercy for God, and they're withholding food and drink from their animals so that the racket is as loud as possible with the hope that what? That God would hear. Verse 9. Now what is their hope? Did Jonah give them any hope? Verse 9. What's their hope? It's a very slight hope, but it's the only hope they seem to have. Verse 9. Who knows? Who knows? God may turn and relent. He may turn from his burning anger so that we will not perish. It may be a slight hope. It may be a slim hope. But these Ninevites have been so convicted by the word that they've heard and convicted of their own sin by the power of the Holy Spirit that they cast themselves upon the mercy of God on the very slight hope just the chance, the possibility that he might show mercy to them. Now God does show mercy to them. Despite Jonah leaving out this portion of his sermon, despite Jonah not proclaiming what repentance might look like, they repent. Despite him offering God's mercy, they cast themselves upon God's mercy with that slim hope that maybe if we repent, he might relent turn from his anger so that we will not perish. And what does God do? Well, God does the thing that Jonah feared most of all. Verse 10. 
this just God was merciful. Verse 10. God saw their actions. They had turned from their evil ways. So God relented from the disaster that he had threatened them with. And he did not do it. God showed mercy to a wicked city. There is here... Uh, an example, a warning to us, and a contrast to Jonah, of people responding well to a little bit of revelation from God, like the sailors did in chapter 1. You remember? They heard something of Yahweh and responded well to that revelation. Here we have the same thing happening. These Ninevites hearing just a, a one-sentence sermon responding well to that revelation. And this is what Jesus picks up on when he sees in his own day a wicked generation that sees all of his miracles, sees God himself in human flesh, and refuse to believe in him. And he tells them that on the day of judgment, what are these Ninevites going to do? They're going to stand up in court as witness against these Israelites in Jesus' day who saw so much more revelation than these Ninevites did and responded terribly to it. See, the Ninevites here are a warning to us because, friends, if you're in this room, you have received more revelation than the Ninevites have. And if you're here and you're a Christian, you have received more revelation. You have a whole Bible full of revelation in contrast with these Ninevites. And we will be held accountable for how much we know and what we did with what we knew. How well we responded to the truth that God has entrusted to us. You see, the knowledge that we have in Christ is a sacred trust. It's a weighty responsibility. We have a great joy in knowing this God and knowing his mercy in Christ. But we need to be sure that we're faithful with what he's entrusted to us. Friends, are, are you being faithful with the knowledge that you know about God, the, the gospel message that has been entrusted to you? Are you being faithful with it? Both in terms of living faithfully before God, but also in terms of holding out this message of mercy to those around you. Let me encourage you to be faithful with the trust that God has given you and entrusting the gospel to you. Be faithful with the message. Or he says, if we're not, what little that we have been given will be taken away from us. Now, we see here a, a revival, a surprising work of the Spirit of God. Revivals are a surprising outpouring of the Spirit in which His Word being proclaimed is accompanied with much power. You see here we have the preaching of God's Word, but then we have with it a surprising work of the Holy Spirit, making sure that that Word is applied with much power. Notice here that God's salvation is a miracle. And the response of these Ninevites is a miracle. It's a, a miraculous working of the Spirit of God. And yet it happens through the proclamation of God's Word. Salvation belongs to the Lord. But the way in which salvation comes is through the preaching of God's Word, which Jonah did, and then through the Holy Spirit accompanying that Word with power, applying the truth of that Word to the hearts of sinners and even at times to the hearts of his, of his own people. We should, as Christians, desire, long for revivals like this that happened in Nineveh in Jonah's day. We should long for God to 
apply his truth in powerful ways to us and to our church and to our generation. At times, God does this. He doesn't always do it. And if you've ever been a part of a revival of some kind, it is such a sweet blessing to be a part of an outpouring of God's Spirit in which much good happens. Seeing people come to know Christ, seeing people responding to the truth, seeing people excited to obey God. But if we are in a time in which we don't see such revival, that doesn't mean we should pack it in and give up on Christianity or wait until the time when that happens again. No, we need to be faithful with the things that God has called us to do and trust him to use the the same means that he's always used in his time and according to his wisdom. This is why each week on Sundays when we gather as a church, we have God's Word the center of all that we do. This is why God's Word is at the center of our services. This is why we are reading God's Word, why we sing songs packed full of God's Word, why we not only read it, we pray God's Word, and then we preach God's Word. And we, in the elements of baptism and the Lord's Supper, seek to see God's Word as well. It is through God's Word that God accomplishes His purposes, His purposes of salvation. This is why we pray for God to use the preaching of his word every week through our pastoral prayer. Because we know that if God is going to work and be at work among his people, among his church, through his word, it's only going to happen if his spirit accompanies it with power. So we seek to be faithful each week here to be sure that it's God's word that's proclaimed through these sermons. Because it's through God's word that God accomplishes his salvation. Both in terms of saving souls, but even in terms of growing us. Preparing us for, fitting us for heaven. And we pray and ask God to pour out his spirit. To apply that truth to our lives. To apply it to non-Christians and to even apply it to us. So that we might grow in holiness. Let's be a people that prays for revival. But seeks to be faithful in the meantime with the means that God has entrusted to us. God's word and prayer and asking him to send his Holy Spirit to empower these means until the time when he does do this among us. Whether he does it in our day or in another generation, let's seek to be faithful, trusting him and his wisdom to work how he will, how he wills. Now notice here that God doesn't do the thing that he said he's going to do. This is confusing for people, maybe confusing for you. Did God change his mind? Is God wishy-washy? Saying one thing and doing another. Well, in Ezekiel 33.11, God tells his prophet Ezekiel, Tell them, as I live, this is the declaration of the Lord God. I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked person should turn from his way and live. Repent. Repent of your evil ways. Why will you die, house of Israel? God delights not in killing the wicked, but in saving sinners. He delights more in saving sinners than in condemning the wicked. He will condemn the wicked because he's just. But he loves to save sinners. So did God change his mind? Has he changed his tune? Has he gone back and forth? Has he waffled like a politician? Well, no. Numbers 23, 19 says God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? God is always willing to show mercy to the repentant. God says this clearly in Jeremiah 18. 
He says this in Jeremiah 18, verses 5 to 11. The word of the Lord came to me, that is Jeremiah, house of Israel, can I not treat you as this potter treats his clay? This is the Lord's declaration. Just like clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, house of Israel. At one moment, I might announce concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will uproot, tear down, and destroy it. However, if that nation about which I have made the announcement turns from its evil, I will relent concerning the disaster I had planned to do. That I had planned to do to it. Verse 9. At another time, I might announce concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it. However, if it does what is evil in my sight... By not listening to me, I will relent concerning the good I had said I will do to it. So now say to the men of Judah and to the residents of Jerusalem, this is what the Lord says. Look, I am about to bring harm to you and make plans against you. Turn now each from your evil way and correct your ways and your deeds. God is not changing his mind, but he is delaying the judgment that he had already planned to bring on Nineveh and on Assyria, and it skips a generation because of the repentance of these Ninevites. And it is within his good and just salvation to be patient with sinners and even to offer salvation to one generation, knowing that in the end, perhaps another generation will turn from him again. God is always willing to show mercy to the repentant. God is not changing his mind here, though he is delaying his actions out of a concern for this generation of Assyrians. He offers salvation to them, which is always a part of his good and wise plans. Now notice here, friends, how slight the Ninevites' hope for mercy is. How slight it is. Who knows? God may be merciful to us. And yet, notice that though their hope of his mercy is so slight, how powerfully they pursue this mercy. They repent. They change their actions. They're convicted of their wickedness. They fast. They put on sackcloth. They make their animals fast. They deal with the racket, the noise of these animals bellowing, it looks like, for three days. They dress their animals in sackcloth. They go to all of these great lengths under this slight hope. Who knows? Maybe God will be merciful to us. Friends, you know that the hope of mercy that we have this side of the cross is ever so much stronger than this slight hope that the Ninevites banked their lives on. We have in Christ not a slight hope, but a certain hope. Not a a slight hope of mercy, but a confident hope of mercy. You see, this side of the cross, we have the confidence to know that the God who created all things and created us is a God of salvation. And we know that in Christ, that the righteous God will be both just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Friends, we have in Christ promise of mercy that we can bank on. This promise comes to us in the message of the gospel, the message of Jesus Christ. If you're here and you're not a Christian, you can bank all of your hopes on this. For it is certain that if you turn from your sins and trust in Christ, you will find in God a merciful God. You will find in Christ the one who deals with your sin justly by taking that sin upon himself on the cross. 
And you have in Christ as he stretched out his hands. Christ stretching out his hands in death in order to welcome sinners to himself. To reconcile us to his father. We have a certain hope in Christ. Let me encourage us if we're here and we are Christians. To live not taking this mercy for granted and not being like Jonah, self-righteous or hypocritical. Happy to take this ourselves. Celebrate our own salvation. Happy Salvation Day to me. And yet look with coldness on a world in need of such mercy. Friends, we've been entrusted with a message of certain mercy. We need to be faithful with it. I pray that we will be by his help. Be a church family. Be Christians together. Or those that realize our need for mercy are excited to offer that mercy to others too. You have here Jonah's prayer of thanks to God for his salvation from his own foolish disobedience. We have here as well Jonah's preaching, his sermon where he preaches wrath against this people. And yet we have a merciful God showing mercy to great sinners. And we have in this message hope for ourselves and for the world. Let's be faithful with it. Let's pray together. Lord, there is more mercy in Christ than there is sin in us. Lord, we have in the cross the place where both justice and mercy meet. And we have, because of Christ and because of his cross work, his victorious resurrection, a certain hope of salvation, of mercy received that is undeserved, and of a message entrusted to us. Lord, help us be faithful with it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you were encouraged and blessed by the word. We'd like to invite you to join us for Sunday worship. If you would like to know our service time and further information, please visit us online at www.emmanueloc.com. And so... May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen. Amen.